0: I'm Anton Hellman. I'm Justin Morgenstern. And this is the Journal, Journal Jam, podcast. Jam podcast. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor medicine cases. In part one and two of this three-part Journal Jam podcast on laceration management with Justin Morgenstern and Haley Cochran... We covered preparation of the wound, including the question of how late is too late for suturing lacerations. We talked about the value of irrigation, whether or not sterile gloves should be used. We answered laceration repair questions like, does aversion matter? How do we best choose between sutures, staples, glue, and wound closure strips? And when we should use absorbable versus non-absorbable sutures. In this part three, we dive into the evidence around laceration and wound aftercare, perhaps the most important part of laceration and wound management. So can wounds get wet? Do patients need dressings? And if so, what's the best dressing? Should they use topical antibiotics? Should we prescribe prophylactic antibiotics for animal bites? And should we recommend particular medications and treatments to help prevent infection and improve cosmesis like vitamin E oil, aloe vera, et cetera? So we've prepared the wound, we've chosen gloves, we have it repaired, and what's left is giving the patient some good home
1: care instructions. So that should be pretty simple. Uh, Justin? Yeah, don't worry. I I only have five more deep dive topics left on our list. So this should be quick, no problem at all. Um, (laughs) I will say personally, despite your statements, aftercare instructions have always been a a bit of a second thought to me. When I started doing these lit searches, I started with all the stuff that we actively do, the exciting stuff, sutures, irrigations, uh, stuff that seems more interesting than our home care instructions. But the more I thought about it, the stuff that we do in the ED is really only a tiny fraction of the patient's care, the patient's journey. right? We're going to be with them for maybe 10 minutes, but they're going to look after their own wound as it heals for the next week. So theoretically, at least, it's possible that this aftercare stuff is way more important than the stuff we do in the ED because it has a lot more time to have an impact. So I, I did get super interested in these topics, but... Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like researchers are as interested as I am. So again, we're going to be going through and working with some pretty subpar evidence here.
0: All right, so let's jump in with what might be the biggest question my patients have for me, which is, can I get the wound wet? So they always ask, you know, when am I
1: allowed to shower? Yeah, I mean, for such a common question, every one of my patients asked me this. The evidence here is amazingly sparse. So the Cochrane review on this topic found only a single trial, just one. Although when I went digging, I did find a couple older publications that weren't included in the Cochrane Review. So let's start with these old, tiny studies. So the first is Voorhees in 1982. I actually haven't been able to get a copy of the full manuscript yet, but based on a summary in a different paper, it sounds like they randomized 82 post-operative patients, so not ED patients, to either clean their wounds twice a day with soap and water, or just to keep the wound dry the entire time until the sutures were removed. And there were no statistical differences at all. There Four infections in the dry group, and two infections in the wet group. So it's a small unblinded trial, very low evidence of evidence, but no difference in trial number one. There's another very small RCT from the 1980s, Goldberg 1981. I find the methods very hard to decipher because they seem to contradict themselves, but as far as I can tell, they seem to have a group of 200 patients who have head and neck lacerations. Some of them are traumatic wounds in the emergency department and some of them are in the OR. It's hard to differentiate that as well. And then some patients were asked to keep their wound dry, again, all the way until the sutures were removed. And then the other patients were told that they were allowed to rinse the wounds in soap and water, and they were allowed to bathe and shower as they were they normally would. Uh, Every time they got the wound wet, they were told they were supposed to apply topical antibiotics. But, and I quote from the paper, quote, the ointment was used only to lubricate the suture and not for any antibiotic property. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but one group got topical antibiotics and the other didn't, for what that's worth. And in this small trial, there were no infections in any patient in either group. There was one patient in the water exposure group that needed a later scar revision after developing an inclusion cyst along the scar line. I will mention one other publication, because I think some of our listeners at least will get a kick out of it. In 1988, the Maple Leafs team doctor, a plastic surgeon, wrote a letter to the editor saying that cleaning wounds with soap and water just makes physiologic sense. And he had treated thousands of wounds that way, including Maple Leafs who had sweated immediately afterwards on the ice. And he thinks he has a remarkably low infection rate. I don't know why I went into that voice for it, but I guess that's some some level of evidence right there. Great paper to read. <laughs>
2: I do think we would probably get more people reading papers if they were published from the major sports organizations. I'm sure they uh, seem to injure themselves as often as their patients do. So there was one RCT uh, that was included in the Cochrane Review, and that is HEAL 2006, which is a great name for a doctor who'd be doing wound research. So. This is a larger study, and by larger study, I mean 870 patients. They were enrolled from multiple family practice settings after skin incisions. So the dry group was asked to keep their wound dry for 48 hours, but then bathe as usual until the sutures were removed, and the, quote, wet group was advised to take their dressings off after 12 hours and bathe as normal. So the infection rate was identical in both groups, 8.6 versus 8.9% allowing for statistical conclusion of non-inferiority. Uh, but, you know, this is not a perfect study. It's not blinded. You can't blind people to, to dry or wet or not showering. And the infection rate was higher than I would expected. You know, we're kind of looking at ranges anywhere between sort of 1% and 3%, and these guys are, are, are edging closer to 10%. So I'd expect that given these are sterile surgical wounds, they, you know, would be less likely to infection, but they weren't. So perhaps most importantly, a difference between the groups, it was only 36 hours, so maybe I wouldn't expect to see a difference. So, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, an interesting study, but not a lot to conclude out of, out of what they have.
1: Yeah. And so as far as I can tell, that is all the evidence that we have on this topic. So clearly we can't say anything definitive here. But honestly, I think you. this is one of those areas that you can use some physiologic reasoning. You can go back to medical school. Which wound do you think is more likely to get infected? One that is regularly cleaned with soap and water or one that is allowed to fester under a dressing for a week? I don't know. obviously you know I, I tell my patients to avoid swimming in things like lake water or going in shared hot tubs but honestly I just think making letting patients shower just makes sense and actually intentionally cleaning the wound also probably makes some physiologic sense to me as well even though it's not proven so in general I, I go with sort of what these studies do I tell them to leave a dressing on overnight for 12 hours so they don't get blood on their sheets but after after that it's just Cover it up if they are doing something where they are worried they're going to uh, get dirt in it or it's going to be uncomfortable. But in, in general, clean it with soap and water seems like a good idea.
2: And I think we've also all had a patient come in from say a nursing home who you know has had a wound that has been covered for four or five weeks and I know I'm always telling my my residents when you have patients that come in and they're sick and we're searching for sepsis to really unwrap those chronic those chronic leg wounds and to take those dressings down to take a look because you know often they are neglected and that's really unfortunate so why not tell people to clean it and I know that at least if they're cleaning the wounds or keeping them clean they're taking those dressings down they're taking a look at the wound and they're hopefully keeping an eye on them as the wounds are healing.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about dressing. So in terms of whether the patient should let the wound get wet or not, I'm definitely going to let my patients shower. I guess that means they're going to be taking off their dressing, we placed in the emergency department. And that, of course, raises the question, how important are dressings in the first place? And the specific question is, do they really help with healing or prevent infection?
1: Justin, do dressings work or not work? And yeah, so I think we should try to keep this section incredibly short because the evidence is so limited that it's just not worth lingering over. Uh, as far familiar. as I know, yeah, there, <laughs> and yet somehow we're still at three hours. So, <laughs> so never invite me back on your podcast. But yes, as far as I know, I searched for a while. I don't think there's a single emergency department trial looking at this, this question. I think that's okay because you know, a dressing is probably more likely to be important in the setting of a perfectly sterile surgical wound than a dirty traumatic laceration. So I think we can extrapolate from the surgical uh, literature. The surgical literature is extremely limited. So there's a Cochrane Review of Surgical Dressings, Durnville 2016, and they conclude that there is no good evidence to support one kind of dressing over any other kind. And then more importantly, there's no good evidence that dressings help at all. So compared to no dressing at all, dressings don't seem to prevent infections, improve scarring, improve pain control. Uh, However, there are really only two RCTs comparing dressings to no dressings, and they're both pretty low quality. So the real conclusions and the conclusions of the Cochrane review are, we just don't know. Uh, there was one other Cochrane review worth mentioning to 2015, they compared early versus late removal of the dressing. So they defined that as 48 hours. And again, there's no difference. They conclude that the early removal of dressings from a clean and clean contaminated surgical wounds appears to have no detrimental effect on outcomes. But again, only three studies. So ton of uncertainty here. The other topic that comes up a lot when it comes to dressings is whether we should keep wounds moist. And I have found this incredibly frustrating because every review I've read and every textbook says fairly definitively moisture helps wound healing there's all sorts of talks about how the cells can move easier and germinal matrix all sorts of physiologic stuff but the citations in those papers literally never lead anywhere Uh, there may be an animal study or or two but i don't think that there's any evidence at all that all these fancy dressings the ones that are designed to promote uh, moisture help at all And again, I've said it a few times on different topics, but this topic is pretty complex because there are so many types of dressings, and obviously they can can be be combined with so many different therapies like topical antibiotics. So I don't think there's any way of knowing for sure uh, based on just the few low-quality RCTs that we have. I think the one thing that you need to add to the mix is... The talk of harms and we're sometimes not good at that in medicine right dressings do add cost and they do add inconvenience and they do hide a wound that might be getting in infected so i think unless we demonstrate some kind of benefit i don't think that we need to be using dressings routinely i think i already said above i, I tend to routinely put them on for the first 12 to 24 hours because i i don't want you bleeding on your bed sheets but after that i just leave it up to my patients if they want to cover the wounds but if they do want to wear a dressing on top of it for cosmetics purposes or, or whatever, I do tell them I'd like them to take it off every day to at least check for infection underneath. And I do you know, clinical judgment. If they're doing some kind of activity, if they're in construction where the wounds likely to get dirty, I tell them probably a dressing is a good idea. The moisture topic, we might come back to a little bit with the topical antibiotics. I, I don't think that there's any good evidence, but I, I tell them they can use a bit of Vaseline if they want to keep the, the wound moist. It might help a little bit with healing.
2: Yeah, I agree, Justin. I think sometimes it's really hard to get dressings on some areas, you know, particularly scalp wounds is a really difficult place to try to keep a dressing on there. You can't tape it to the hair. And we'll see if it's going to not only contamination, but if it's going to bleed or ooze onto people's clothing or onto their bed sheets or something, then I think telling them to use a dressing is totally fine. And I'm not sure if you've taken a field trip into the pharmacies to see how expensive some, you know, packs of gauze and dressings really are. They really can run sort of 4 or $5 a pop. And if you're, you know, changing wounds for, for you know, two weeks or you're changing them for 10 days. Sometimes that actually can get kind of expensive for patients. I ask them to keep it covered if there's a risk for contamination or high friction that's going to pull off scabs or pressure on my sutures, you know, looking where things are rubbing, looking at shoes, or, or maybe, you know, as I mentioned with construction workers if they're built or something's going to rub against it, that's probably important. And there's actually some data on dressings for really specific conditions, and this is coming out of the dermatology literature, but in particular, I just want you to think about keloid formation. So we don't think about that often, but when we're considering patients, because I think another thing we're thinking about when we're thinking of these wounds are patients who are Caucasian or light-skinned, but when you come to darker skin patients, sometimes they're more prone to keloid formation, and those can be very unsightly raised scars. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on in this. I think it's, if you see a patient already has keloid scarring, maybe it's worth taking some time to sit down and just quickly look up, you know, uh, on one of your resources, such as Up Today, about, about some of the colloidal dressings or maybe dressing suggestions for those specific types of people. And then one of the other things that's mentioned in some of, in some of these, uh, you know, dressing papers or suggestions or clinical statements is considering maybe splinting for a period of time. Now, this is something I think I've almost never done. I've seen it done before. But, you know, if you think they're going to pull at it, they're going to grab at it, if there's too much tension on it, you know, why not putting, a, you know, a splint on something for maybe a forearm or a hand wound. But then you're looking at some of the disability that comes with that. So as for moisture, again, we have pretty dry climate in Canada, particularly in the winter, some of our listeners may be living in really arid Spots. I think practically, you know, a bit of topical Vaseline to keep that wound from cracking and bleeding can only really be beneficial if it's not going to be harmful. And especially in those with high tension over joints for the skin, we want the skin maybe a bit more malleable.
0: All right. That all sounds like very reasonable stuff to me about dressings. Lots of common sense stuff and also leaving it up to the patient for a lot of the care down the road in terms of dressings. Of all the aftercare topics. I've probably heard the strongest opinions about the use of topical antibiotics. Do topical antibiotics do anything? I mean, we've talked about how applying petroleum jelly will keep the wound moist, and that may help wound healing. No good evidence for that. Uh, But certainly, it makes sense in very dry climates to avoid uh, cracking and bleeding to use a bit of petroleum jelly. Is petroleum jelly with a topical antibiotic in it any better than just plain old petroleum jelly?
2: Boy, do patients love their topical ointment-based antibiotics. You know, I think this is more uh, more a testament to marketing than anything else because there's very little data to help make our decisions. There's only one emergency department study that looks at topical antibiotics as we normally use them. That's Dyer in 1995. This is a double-blind placebo-controlled RCT of 465 patients with laceration. So that's a promising start, you know, <laughs> a few more under people than normal, but it's a single center base out of a military hospital, which might impact the results because it's possible that military personnel are different and the average patients either in compliance or in activities that might actually contaminate wounds when you think about the types of activities they're involved in. They were instructed uh, all of their patients to scrub their wounds with soap and water three times a day. So jumping back a bit to cleaning, a bit more aggressive than maybe we expect or suggest to our patients. And so you can see the crossover between these topics. And after cleaning the wounds, they applied one of three antibiotics or a placebo. So the antibiotics tested were bacitracin, so a, tip, a triple antibiotic ointment, so no sort of neomycin or polymyxin B and bacitracin together, and silver uh, sulfadiazine, which we often see in our burn patients. So wound infection occurred in 6% of in the bacitracin group, 5% of triple antibiotic group, and 12% of the silver sulfadiazine group. So and overall, 18% of the positive groups, probably one of the higher infection rates that I've seen. But again, we're thinking about this group specifically as maybe being different from our, from our run-of-the-mill emergency department patients. So here's the problem. Not all infections are the same. Basically, all infections in this study were simple stitch abscesses, they didn't require antibiotics, and they didn't change management. Only 16 patients in the entire trial were given antibiotics to treat an infection, and the rate wasn't statistically significant between groups. So the trial shows a relatively big difference in infection rates with topical antibiotics, but the infections that were being prevented were very minor, perhaps to the point of like clinical insignificance. Who really cares about a small stitch abscess if it's going to drain on its own once you take this? The suture out. So there was one patient in the triple antibiotic group who developed an allergic reaction bad enough to have to stop the trial. And that's an entirely different topic related to allergy and topical dermatitis from these antibiotics.
1: At the beginning when reading these papers, I would have thought wound infection was an objective outcome. But the more you read it, there, there is such a spectrum of wound out- outcomes. And so I think to me that what matters is did this patient require antibiotics, although even then quote require antibiotics is is pretty subjective. Um, and so on the face, that's a big difference in that tr- trial, like even a third the number of people getting infections, but if they're all little stitch abscesses that don't need anything at all, except for removing the stitch, not such a big difference. And really, I think that is probably the only relevant study that we have to deal with. There are a few other data sets we can look at. There were two earlier studies uh, that really used antibiotics more as irrigation in the emergency department rather than actual aftercare. So Caro, all the way back in 1967, sprayed antibiotics on the wound while they were repairing it. Uh, and there was no difference between infection uh, as compared to no treatment. And then Lindsay in 1982 soaked lacerations and they soaked them either in saline or penicillin. And uh, the infection rate was you know, much lower with penicillin, but it's a poor quality study. There was a 31% infection rate in the control group. That seems amazingly high to me. The only other data set that I thought was really interesting and might sway some people is there's a Cochrane review looking at systemic antibiotics as prophylaxis in simple non bite wounds. So that's Cummings back in 1995. And at that point, there were seven RCTs, 1,700 patients. Five of those trials gave oral antibiotics and two gave an IM intramuscular dose, and there was no differences. And in fact, almost all of the trials had slightly higher infection rates in the antibiotic group. So if systemic antibiotics don't work as prophylaxis, should we expect topical antibiotics to work? I'm not sure which one you would, quote, think of as, a, as quote, stronger, but interesting to, to add to the conversation. And I think clearly this is not a lot of data. Like everything we've talked about, we can't make a clear black and white statement here. Topical antibiotics might decrease infection rates by a little bit, but the infections we're preventing seem to be mostly inconsequential. And then you have to consider the added costs of topical antibiotics. As well as the possibility of allergic reactions um, and uh, dermatitis. So it probably, honestly, doesn't matter very much one way or another. I don't form a strong opinion. I just let my patients decide what they want to do.
2: It's also not to mention promoting resistance by using topical antibiotics when they're not indicated. I know we are not the best at our antimicrobial stewardship in the emergency department, and we are trying to get better, but what. For throwing antibiotics at something that doesn't need it, I think we need to really consider, you know, what is the resistance that we're breeding on this patient? And I know most of my patients will only let me take their polysporin when I pry it from their cold, dead, multi or drug resistant organism infected corpse. But I think maybe we can try to apply something that has less contact dermatitis potential, like that like a Vaseline or a lanolin, something ointment
0: based. Yeah, so it seems reasonable then. To recommend cleaning the wound with soap and water, some petroleum jelly, especially in dry climates, to use a dressing for the first day or so, and maybe longer than that if you're like a construction worker or, or a toddler who tends to pick up the wound or something. Um, and then topical antibiotics don't seem to really be much better than petroleum jelly alone. Let's talk about a subset of patients, those with animal bites. So it's actually a relatively small proportion of patients that we see, but what should we do with animal bites? I guess the first question is, what's the infection rate to start with? And then should we be treating them differently? And the big question that always comes up, do they need prophylactic antibiotics? Justin?
1: You know, honestly, we, we could probably have done an entire journal jam on just this issue, but let's try to keep it simple uh, because I think it's just important that we try to avoid dogma here. Um, the evidence, like almost everything we've talked about, is not going to be strong enough to make a strong claim either way. So we need to use judgment. We need to talk to our patients Before we talk about antibiotics specifically, let's just ask the bigger question. Should we even suture these clothes? And this question to me reminds me a lot of the very first question we asked all those hours ago about whether it was okay to suture closed lacerations when patients present late. And the idea is that dog bites or cat bites or animal bites will have increased rates of infection but with delayed presentations, we decided we might as well repair those wounds. And I think the same thing is going to be true of animal bites. There are just two RCTs. Mameris in 1988 looked at 169 lacerations caused by dog bites and randomized them to suturing or healing by secondary intent. Uh, neither group received antibiotics, but both were washed out with chlorhexidine. And the infection rate was identical, 6% in both groups. The scar was somewhat smaller, not unsurprisingly, if you sutured the wounds closed. And then uh, Patros in 2014 is another RCT, 168 dog bites compared sutures to no sutures. Again, there was no difference, 10 versus 7%. So the trial might be a little too small to see an important difference uh, today. And again, assessed by a blinded surgeon, cosmesis was significantly better with suturing, which is exactly what you would expect. So that's all the data we have. I can't make a super strong uh, conclusion here, but when you add it to the patients who are presenting late, I don't think an increased risk of infection means that you don't suture a wound closed. Just like these late presenters, bite wounds have a high risk of infection. So I counsel my patients, but I'm still closing them exactly like I would all my other wounds.
2: Yeah, Justin, I agree. I, I think the other group we're always leaving out of this is, again, our immunocompromised patients are who have a risk of poor healing. But I think when I'm thinking very broad strokes, I suture any of those big gaping bites from animals for cosmetics and, and really leaving small punctures alone. We know that those small wounds are probably going to heal well, so so why bother you know, involving yourself in the healing process that's going to occur naturally. But maybe this is the right place for your iodine cleaning, Justin. I think it can't hurt when that dog mouth is filthy. I also know that my old dog was a connoisseur of his own excrement. So, you know, I don't think he's alone in that species trait. So maybe, you know, doing a good job of rinsing and cleaning those wounds out, cleaning anything big and leaving anything punctured alone.
1: And yet they always tell us that human bites are worse than dog bites. So what does that say about the average human out
2: there? Truthfully.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that segues nicely into uh, what about prophylactic antibiotics for animal bites? I mean, human bites we we maybe won't get to, Um, but it, it seems like the practice has changed a lot in the last 10 years. It used to be that pretty much everyone got sent home with amoxicillin clavulinic acid, which is clavulin in Canada and Augmentin in the US, but that seems to be happening less often now. Let's talk about the evidence for prophylactic antibiotics for animal bites
2: yeah I, I know uh for my American listeners that that augmentin we we colloquially called it dogmentin for this specific reason and and it's actually a little bit trickier evidence wise There's two different meta-analysis and and their conclusions actually say different things. so there's a Cochrane review from two thousand and one they found eight rcts of mammalian bites. So overall, prophylactic antibiotics don't seem to decrease the rates of infection from dog or cat bites. They did decrease the rate of infection after human bites, um, and if you focus on on dog or cat bites of the hand, which is you know you more commonly where they're going to occur in adults. Uh, dog bites occur more commonly the, uh, on the face in children. Antibiotics again look like they help with a number needed to treat of only four, which is the really wide confidence intervals. There was another older meta-analysis, which was Cummings from 1994. They found eight RCTs, although you know slightly different RCTs, and they found that prophylactic antibiotics were very effective in reducing infections, and the relative risk was 0.56. So we could cut our patient's infection rate in about half.
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting when you have two big meta-analyses sort of concluding different things as their headline conclusions. So let's just take a quick look at the one paper that seems to lead to the different conclusions of these two uh, studies. And so that's Brackenbury 1989. It's a double-blind RCT comparing uh, amoxicillin clavulanate to placebo in 185 patients with animal bites. It was mostly dogs. There were a handful of humans. There was also a rabbit and a ferret in the study, if you were interested. Big problem. They lost 23% of their patients uh, by by day three. So we just don't know what happened to almost a quarter of the study. And then I think the biggest issue uh, is just the rate of infection in in my mind. They tell us that antibiotics decrease infection, but infection occurred in 33% of the antibiotic group and 60% of the placebo group. Like that's just an incredibly high infection rate. I, I don't see infection rates like that in any other study. And I think it's because of their definition of infection, right? So any redness, even if there was no cellulitis or purulence, was defined as an an infection. And honestly, that might just be the basic immune response. If there's a few bacteria in there, you want your body to send some extra uh, immune cells to the area, there might be redness. That might not be the same thing as infection. And so for me, this gets back to the very core, core issues. We're talking about prophylactic antibiotics. So, and so for me this gets to the very core issue here uh, when we're talking about prophylactic antibiotics we better we be clear about the type of infection that we're preventing right if prophylactic antibiotics can prevent sepsis or septic arthritis absolutely that's something that I want to do if I'm only preventing a tiny bit of redness which itself doesn't even need any treatment that clearly isn't worth the harm most of the time we're talking about a very minor infection which maybe needs a brief course of oral antibiotics at worst but I I think you need to pause and think about what that actually means. What you're saying is that you're going to give 100 patients antibiotics so that five patients might avoid antibiotics three days later. That doesn't make any sense to me. All you're doing is massively increasing antibiotic use. So unless we're preventing something really important, something like sepsis or admissions, I I think it makes way more sense to wait until there's signs of infection and just treat then. Again, of course, like everything else we've talked about, there is a ton of wound for uh, room for judgment here, right? Deep wounds, puncture wounds that you can't clean easily, immunocompromised patients for sure if it's right over a joint. Given the weakness of this data, if you want to use prophylactic antibiotics in some high risk patient, absolutely go for it. But I think despite some significant weaknesses in the overall data, there's enough information to tell us that we probably shouldn't be doing this routinely.
2: And one of the things I would sort of like to single out is cat bites. And, you know, they're, I'm sort of referencing an emergency department study done in Sweden. So maybe Sweden has very, very special cats that we don't have. But this is a, a study done in Westling. And uh, this is in 2006. And they found almost a quarter of patients got infections from cat bites. And I know that I feel, you know, personally, and again, this is my, this is my own experience that I do see cat bites get infected, but, you know, there, there's some, you know, practical reasons, high bacterial load in their mouth and their, and their teeth create these very small deep punctures. So they can inoculate deeper into the tissue. It's easier for them to slip into joints, uh, you know, in the hands where dog bites are more often sort of crusher tearing in nature. So you're going to see something a bit more superficial. So, you know, there's there's also the argument of some of the more dangerous pathogen in animal bites. I know we're always, we're always worried with some of these studies that we're going to miss that one, you know, severe case of, of a bacterial infection that leads to sepsis. But, you know, I think what's also important if we're thinking about that is also thinking holistically about the bite itself. Is the patient's tetanus up to date? You know, does this patient need a need rabies prophylaxis? So not enough time to go into those individuals in the studies for that, but just making sure you're considering all facets of, of an animal bite. Why, why did they get bit? is it safe to be at home do you need to involve you know public health for some of these i think those are all all you know other considerations to think about for animal bites as well
1: i do want to bring up one important topic about cat bites i think actually cat bites are much much less likely to get infected than dog bites like significantly less likely cuz you have to think about the bias in the studies and maybe My bias is I'm a dog person over a cat person, but everybody who I know with a cat gets bit like six times a day. They don't come to the emergency department for those cats. They come once a year, only after it gets infected. So of course, the study in the emergency department shows a higher infection rate, but you come to the emergency department every time for a major dog bite, but the cats are just vicious and they're biting you constantly. So I'm fairly certain actually cat bites have a lower risk of infection, but selection bias means that we see a higher rate. But obviously by the time you're seeing them in the emergency department, that should maybe affect how you treat them. Yeah,
2: Great point. I think that uh, we are probably just seeing that skewed proportion of the worst cat bites on top of the routine cat bites that our cat owners are getting on a daily basis.
0: I guess we can say when it comes to animal bites that Big gaping animal bite lax should probably be closed. Uh, Make sure you clean them well. And based on the evidence, it makes most sense to reserve antibiotic prophylaxis for deep wounds. Those in immunocompromised patients, maybe cat bites, although I think Justin disagrees with that one. And don't forget to address tetanus and rabies as per your local guidelines. Let's move on to sort of other medications and treatments for wounds. There's all kinds of things out there. There's vitamin E oil, there's aloe vera cream. Um, I get patients asking me all the time about the efficacy of all these different potions that tend to be expensive. Any evidence for any of them?
1: Yeah. So I spent way, way, way more time than I would like to admit searching PubMed and Google Scholar and even Google for all of these topics. And honestly, there just isn't enough evidence on any of them to spend a time doing a journal jam. So I'm going to suggest we just do a very rapid fire evidence review. Anton, you're going to yell out a topic and we'll cover it in 20 seconds or less. All right. Aloe vera.
2: No ED studies. One study after skin biopsy, no benefit, and that's because there was 100% healing in both groups. Bottom line, not enough evidence to say anything.
0: All right. What I tend to tell patients who come in with coughs that won't go away,
1: honey. Yeah. So for wounds, the Cochrane Review does say there are 26 RCTs, but they're basically all for chronic wounds or burns. There were three trials that looked at acute wounds compared to normal dressings, with no difference at all, but none of them were in lacerations. So, bottom line, not enough evidence to say anything. All right, honey's out. Vitamin E.
2: This is the one topic we could probably talk longer about, uh, but there's no ED studies. There are six RCTs after surgery. Three look positive with very big differences, but the three positive studies are unblinded and have other methodological issues. The three blinded trials are all negative, um, and there seems to be an issue of contact dermatitis, which we see in other things. So, not enough evidence to make any solid conclusions as a bottom line line the highest quality studies suggest no benefit
0: okay so so far no benefit really with aloe vera with honey or with vitamin e the one that i do tend to tell patients myself and i'm open to being proven wrong but uh to avoid sun exposure usually i tell them for about six months
1: Yeah, I wish I had science to sway you one way or another. The common teaching is that wounds should be protected from the sun. There are definitely a large number of theoretical or physiologic reasons for that uh, teaching. And there are some animal models that suggest that UV light can cause some worse scars. But I'll mention there's also animal research suggesting that UV light might be really good for healing because it has antimicrobial properties. So I don't think that the animal models or theoretical data gets us very far. Theoretical sun avoidance makes some sense to me. But as far as I can tell, there is not a single clinical trial to guide us here. So, my bottom line is, I guess sunbirds are bad, but otherwise, not enough evidence to say anything definitively. All right.
0: Let's wrap up after careful lacerations. Then let's talk practicalities. Uh, Dr. Cochran, Dr. Morgenstern, what do the two of you actually tell your patients when they're leaving the ED?
2: Sure. So, the first way I approach this one is just telling my patients that they're going to scar. That's just going to thats a natural process of healing, just so they know that that's what their baseline is. The next thing I talk to them is just sort of good care in terms of keeping the wound clean, you know, keeping a close eye on for signs of infection. I do counsel them that this is going to turn red. It's going to get a bit irritated. That's also a natural part of healing because you don't want them running back as soon as at the first sign of redness. But, you know, giving them the more classic instructions, looking for that streaking, that spreading urethema, increasing pain. That's pretty common. If it's going to turn red and it's starting to hurt, that might be a good warning sign from them. Also telling them appropriately where they can call it follow up, they don't have to run back to the emergency department and wait another eight to 10 hours. If they're noticing a bit of redness, and it's not rapidly spreading up their arm, they can see their family doctor, maybe a walk in clinic. I say there's not great evidence in anything. But I, you know, I think one of the things that's important, maybe there's not good harm if they like using potions and lotions on their skin, and they're not creating contact dermatitis, redness or irritation, then, then that's totally fine for them to use if they find that it's beneficial and helpful.
1: Yeah, I think my instructions are very similar. I just realized a bias I have. I talk to all parents about scarring in their kids because I don't want them to be freaked out about the like red-looking wound at at three weeks. But I don't think I routinely talk about scars in older adults because I found I I don't think that they care as much when I start talking about it. But maybe I should reflect on that. Um, I tell everybody I don't think a dressing is required, but you need it maybe for the first 12 or 24 hours because it will probably bleed a little bit at that point. I do suggest you actually take it off every day, take a look underneath, see what's going on. And it's probably not a bad idea to clean the wound with soap and water. Uh, at very at least I told them I don't care if they get it wet and they should go ahead and shower and bath exactly like they, they always would. But dirty water lakes public pools hot tubs don't go don't go in that that just makes sense i generally suggest against topical antibiotics but not strongly as i said they might prevent these small pimple like infections but there's a risk of allergic reaction so I, I i don't think that they're necessary but i do really emphasize like you said keep an eye out for the signs of major infection i basically always just say it's going to look like a pimple a large pimple big red swollen uh, swollen or white stuff coming out of it that's the stuff that makes me want you to come back to the emergency department. And then I tell people there's no evidence for any of the expensive scars, uh, scar creams that are out there, including the vitamin E stuff. I do worry. There's a lot of stuff on the shelves of our, our pharmacies that cost a lot of money. And I, I do worry about the financial strain we put on people for basically snake oil type stuff, but it's, it's hard to call something a snake oil when the evidence isn't fully there. Uh, but until we see evidence, I tend to just suggest a, a thin layer of Vaseline as the thing that's most likely to help them with their, their scarring again, unless you brought it up early uh, earlier, unless they're in a high risk uh, group now. Well, those fancy silicon sheets and stuff that are supposed to work for heloids that could be a whole another topic. I'm not sure that they they really do, but if they're in a really high risk group, it's worth exploring some of the the other options or at least asking them to talk to, to their doctor who might know more about it because uh, it's it's tricky.
0: All right. I guess it goes without saying that none of us are paid by any of these companies that make all these uh, <laughs> potions and dressings
1: and all kinds of things. So we're paid by apathy. Do nothing. Stand there. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> <sad. laughs> Supported
2: by lack of evidence all around.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, we have covered a ton of material on this three-part journal jam podcast. The main theme throughout seems to be that the evidence is not so wonderful for any of the classic dogma that we've been taught about lacerations and wound care, that as long as we get good skin apposition and be a bit more careful with the high-infection risk patients, use whatever you're comfortable with and skilled at and what the patient prefers, and keeping in mind that the time it takes you, the comfort of the patient, and the cost really should enter into your decision-making. So again, shared decision-making is especially helpful in these areas where the evidence is unclear, and good discharge instructions are always a good idea. We hope that this journal jam has reinforced some of the things you already do for your patients with lacerations, and that you'll consider some others to refine your practice. So thank you so much, both of you, for the huge amount of work that you've done, sifted through a ton of literature on this one. I'm looking forward to your next EM Quick Hits. Justin, you've, uh, you're an old pro at the EM Quick Hits by now, but uh, I am pleased to announce to the EM casers that, uh, that Dr. Cochran is planning on giving us some EM Quick Hits of her own on uh, some more procedural goodies. So thanks to both of you.
1: Thanks for having us, Anton. Yeah,
2: thanks, Anton. I challenge you to find a more la- evidence lacking podcast <laughs> episode than the one we've just had a few part series on.